And now a reading from the Gospel of Matthew. I encourage you to stand if you're able at home or here. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on the right, Come, you are blessed by my father. Take your inheritance. The kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in person and go to visit you? The king will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? He will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did not do for the one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. I'm David Schrader. I am the Associate District Superintendent for the North District of uh, Indiana Conferences United Methodist Church. And I'm filling in for Pastor Michelle Cobb, who is in quarantine. Please keep her in your prayers. And also uh, Becky Baker, a staff member here who uh, has COVID. Uh, Michelle was going to preach on the gospel lesson that you heard. And uh, I'm Sure, you look forward to hearing her message about that at some other time. I'm going to speak on some verses from the third and fourth chapter of the Old Testament book of Joshua. Hear these words. And the Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the eyes of all Israel, so that they may know that I am with you, as I was with Moses. Tell the priests who carry the covenant, Ark of the Covenant that when they reach the edge of the Jordan's waters, they are to stand in the river. And as soon as the priests who carry the Ark set foot in the Jordan, its waters flowing downstream will be cut off and stand up in a heap. So when the people broke camp to cross the Jordan, the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant went ahead of them. Now, the Jordan is at flood stage during the harvest. Yet as soon as the priests who carried the ark reached the Jordan and their feet touched the water's edge, the waters from upstream stopped flowing. It piled up in a heap a great distance away at a town called Adam in the vicinity of Zarethan. 
while the waters flowing down to the Sea of Arabah, that is the Dead Sea, were completely cut off. So the people crossed over opposite Jericho. And the priest who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stepped in the middle of the Jordan and stood on dry ground while all Israel passed by until the whole nation had completed the crossing on dry ground. And when the whole nation had finished crossing the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, Choose twelve men from among the people, one from each tribe, and tell them to take up twelve stones from the middle of the Jordan, from right where the priests are standing, and to carry them and put them down at the place where you stay tonight. So Joshua called together the twelve men he had appointed from the Israelites, one from each tribe, and said to them, Go over before the ark of the Lord your God in the middle of the Jordan, and each of you is to take up a stone on his shoulder, according to the number of the tribes of the Israelites. And this is to serve as a sign among you. In the future, when your children ask, What do these stones mean? Tell them that the flow of the Jordan was cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord when it crossed the Jordan, and the waters of the Jordan were cut off, and these stones are to be a memorial to the people of Israel forever. Will you join me in a moment of prayer? May the words of my mouth and the meditation in all of our hearts, dear Lord, honor you and give you glory. Amen. The first time I met Jim was at the sound of a rifle shot. Just a day after my arrival to my very first appointment out of seminary, Pam and I had our breakfast disturbed by the sound of a high-powered rifle. And there at the edge of my yard was an older gentleman lying prone and shooting at a target set up 150 yards away. I walked out to meet him. Just setting the sights, he proclaimed, getting ready for a hunting expedition in the Arctic Circle, going after moose. It will be the 40th year in a row that I and my three buddies have gone hunting together. Last year, it was bear. Well, I, I didn't exactly approve. I always thought moose and bear looked better on National Geographic than being mounted on a wall. But who was I to argue with someone standing there with a loaded Winchester? Jim seemed like a strange neighbor at first. Part of him did not trust me because I was a preacher, and he told me point blank right there and then, preachers are blankety-blank charlatans and con men. After I'm done sighting in the rifle, I won't bother you anymore. You can count on that. I stood there watching him as he tried to hit a dinner plate-sized target set up 150 yards away. He kept missing, and each time he did, he let out a barrage of swear words. Finally, he stood up and grumbled as he stared at the side adjustment on the rifle, and then he got this ornery look in his eyes as he turned toward me and said, Here, you try it while I look at the target through my binoculars. 
and he thrust the rifle into my hands and had this look that said, this should be a hoot watching a preacher try to shoot. What Jim didn't know is that I was a former amateur marksman champion. The uh, Boy Scout regional champion when I was a teenager and I won championships in college. And I dropped to the ground and promptly put five rounds right through the center of the target. Outshot by a blankety-blank preacher, he screamed, and he threw the binoculars to the ground and stormed into his house, leaving me standing there with his rifle. That was, honest to goodness, the beginning of my first day as a full-time United Methodist pastor. Jim was true to his word. He didn't speak to me after that. But during my first funeral at that church, I looked over at the parsonage as I climbed into the funeral director's car and saw Jim mowing my lawn. When I returned home, I went over to his house to thank him. He waved me off and, without saying a word, slammed the door in my face. It happened again some weeks later. This time, the burial was in the little cemetery behind that country church. Just a few hundred yards away, you could hear the hum of Jim's lawn tractor as he once again was mowing my yard. <laughs> I mentioned how strange this was to a church trustee who was there for the funeral. This Jim says he feels preachers are charlatans and con men. He won't talk to me, but twice now I've, I've had a funeral and he's mowing my yard. What's going on? The trustee walked me over to a corner of the cemetery and pointed to three graves in a row, all with Jim's last name on them. The first, he said, was Jim's first wife, who died from ovarian cancer. The second is his youngest son, who committed suicide over his mother's death. The grave, dated a few years later, is that of Jim's second wife. Unknown to her or Jim, when they got married, she had ovarian cancer and died within a year. He won't have anything to do with the church because he feels preachers make promises about God's goodness and love and God doesn't come through. But he mows your lawn because this church conducted the funerals for all three of his family members. Jim had a slight stroke shortly after that. He wasn't going to be able to go on that 40th anniversary hunting trip. As a volunteer chaplain at the local hospital, I was on duty when the ambulance brought Jim to the trauma center. It was a minor stroke, but it did affect his ability to speak clearly. He could talk, but it was hard to understand at times. And he would recover but not in time to make that trip with his three friends. As the first one to miss that trip in 40 years, 
he took it as a sign that my life is over. I tried to befriend Jim while he was in the hospital. He was reluctant to talk to me. I, I was never sure whether it was because I was a preacher or because he struggled to speak. The only time I could get him to talk is if I brought up the subject of hunting. And I reminded him of the hundreds of geese that flew over that area where we lived and told him that maybe he would be well enough later this fall that his friends, when they returned from their trip, could take him goose hunting. And he simply told me, geese are for sissies. <laughs> Evidently, he liked hunting things that were big enough to hunt him back. I did get Jim to promise me that he would call me after he returned home if he was ever in trouble. And I promised that he could call me as his neighbor, not as a preacher. Twice during that first month, my phone rang in the night with Jim's raspy and broken voice at the other end. Both times I ended up rushing to his house and taking him to the hospital. Nothing major, dizzy spells caused by new medications. In mid-autumn, my phone rang at 4 a.m. The gravelly and almost unintelligible sound of Jim's voice was on the other line. I had no idea what he was saying and simply turned to Pam and said, uh, Jim's in trouble, I have to get over there. And I, I quickly pulled a pair of blue jeans over my pajama bottoms. I slipped on my shoes wearing no socks and I put a trench coat over my pajama top and I ran over to Jim's house. There he stood at the front door in full hunter's camouflage. Two shotguns under one arm, a bag of goose decoys held in the other, and he looked at me standing there with my pajamas poking out of my blue jeans, and in the most slow and deliberate voice he could muster, he said, you're not going like that, are you? <laughs> and frankly, I, I didn't know what to do other than to change clothes and go with him. Soon I was standing in a swamp in the rain with Jim blowing on this goose call, trying to call down geese that thankfully never came close. He didn't care. He just blew that whistle and blew that whistle and seemed to be having the time of his life. <laughs> Jim was in church the next Sunday. People were amazed. Jim had not been in church since the funeral of his second wife. But there he was, and he seemed pleased that people warmly greeted him. And that started a change in his life. By the next summer, he took it upon himself to mow the lawns of anybody listed in the prayer concern list of that church. When winter rolled around, he would go out and shovel their walks. He took up baking pies for shut-ins. They were the most ghastly looking pies you ever saw. The crust was always burnt. They were always leaking fruit juice all over. One of the shut-ins summoned me to her house and held up this awful looking pie and said, Jim, bake me this. 
Isn't that nice of him? Isn't that wonderful? I'm not going to eat it, but I want to tell everyone about it. Jim, over the years, became one of the best neighbors and most loving Christians you could ever know. Now, he was never free of the emotional pain from having lost his wives and his son, but he was able to move from uh, having pain to having that help him identify with others who were in pain, to sympathize and minister to them when they lost loved ones. Jim became the first person I brought to church membership as a young pastor. Years later, I was called back from another church and asked to speak at his funeral when Jim died. And afterwards, I asked his eldest son, who would oversee the estate, if I could have something that belonged to Jim. I, I don't usually make it a habit of asking for uh, belongings of recently deceased church members. But having talked about this item at Jim's funeral, his eldest child insisted we go over to the house and find it right now. And he looked for over an hour, and we found it. And I want to show it to you. It's this. <laughs> that goose call. <laughs> Whenever I hold it in my hand, I can vividly remember Jim and our connection. Sometimes I put it into the hands of other people and tell them the story about the conversion of this man and his change from being bitter towards God to being a vehicle of God's grace towards others. And for this reason, I often refer to this goose call as my rock. In Joshua 4, verses 1 through 7, we're told that God commanded the Hebrew people to gather rocks as they crossed the Jordan into the Promised Land, to place them into a pile so that years later, when their children ask why these rocks were there, they could be told the story, which would turn the rocks into a memorial about that event. We all have rocks, or tokens just as good. They represent things that are very personal, symbols of adulthood, accomplishment, crossing over to some new stage in life. Photo albums tell the story, but it is the rock, whether that rock be a pressed rose within a Bible, a champagne glass from a wedding, the hospital mask you wore when your child was delivered, or the stick shift knob from your first car. It's the rock that you can hold in your hand that magically gives you the power to vividly remember. We don't tell our children about our rocks very often, so when, they, when we die and they clean out our estate, they will come across strange things which will cause them to wonder, why did mom save this? Why did dad keep that? And we don't have to tell our children about 
all our special rocks, why we kept them, those emblems of passage. But there's one type of symbol related to transitions in life, which our scripture lesson says we must tell our children about and our friends and our relatives, those rocks related to faith and to the times when we felt that God led us beyond where we were to things new and greater. The Lord told Joshua to tell the people to gather rocks from the Jordan, to carry them with them, to show them to their children and say, this is from the Jordan River where God led us over to the promised land. You can hold it in your hand. It's real. Whatever the actual history might have been back on that river around 1200 B.C., these people felt that God was with them. They felt it deep in their souls with the same type of effect that causes one to carve their initials in a heart on a tree or to hold a hospital mask in your hands and vividly recall the feeling of the miracle of parenthood. Or to 20 years later, to toast from the same champagne glass you used to toast at your wedding. When you read scripture, you're not just supposed to look at the facts in the story. You need to look for the symbolic meaning as well. If you don't do that, you cheat yourself out of much of what is there. I want you to picture how this story has been symbolically used by people of faith over the years. Moses had just died, and now this new leader, Joshua, leads the Jews. The side of the Jordan they stand upon represents the past. Slavery in Egypt, 40 years wandering in the wilderness. On the other side is the promised land. The priest puts his foot on the edge of the water and the waters of the Jordan divide, making a great wall off to a side. The Hebrews cross on dry ground. That imagery is found again and again in things like the hymns of the church, which speak about crossing the Jordan into the promised land. Moses is gone. We must go on without him. We cross over into maturity of faith on our own. We cross over into new life. We cross over boundaries and obstacles. We never imagined that we could conquer. And it's reflected in our hymns. When I tread the verge of Jordan, bid my anxious fears subside, death of death and hell's destruction land me safe on Canaan's side. It's found in spirituals such as I looked over Jordan and what did I see coming for to carry me home. It's a spiritual message about surviving the impossible and growing into something new and better and stronger. I want you to ask yourself a question. At what point in life did you cross over? When did you cross over into spiritual maturity? 
from life to death, from sin to righteousness, from loss to being led forth by the power of God? Is it any wonder that the same Jordan is where Jesus chose as his place of baptism and where he would leave the water to go forth no longer to be known as a carpenter, but to be known as the very son of God. And just as God wanted Joshua and the Jews to have something to hold in their hands that they might remember, Jesus wanted us to have something as well. The sacrament of communion, something with taste, something which makes us vividly recall his words. Eat this and remember me. You have a house full of mementos about growing up, coming of age, making a transition that was important. And for many of those times, you felt that God was there to lead you or guide you. You have faced catastrophe or fear and felt God help you survive. And I bet you're holding on to something to remind you of those days, that special Bible you bought or marked, that golden cross that you purchased knowing that Jesus did die for you, the baptismal certificate, the little religious artwork that you bought at a place of pilgrimage, 2020 has been a difficult year. At minimum, we all feel cooped up. For some, it's been the worst year of all due to illness or the death of a loved one. We are frustrated by the tensions in our society. For many, it might be one of those years where we find it difficult to find something to be thankful for. But I want to challenge you with this. As we enter this week of Thanksgiving, look around your house. Identify those mementos that represent high points in your life. Hold them in your hand and celebrate and be thankful for what they represent and how your life has been blessed by what they represent. Where did you find your rock? Place it in someone's hand this Thanksgiving. Or if you're not seeing family because of the pandemic, tell them about it over the phone or over Zoom. Post it on Facebook. Tell your story. Life becomes really real when you get to hold or see someone else's rock. This is the word of the Lord. Each of you is to take up a stone to serve as a sign among you. In the future, when your children ask, why did you keep these rocks? Tell them, the story about the day you crossed the Jordan. These stones are to be memorial to this forever. Amen.